0: If you would, uh, open with your Bibles the 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to read three verses here, and then we're going to talk about this this morning. I believe this what God's given me it ties in with, with last week, and probably a little bit of next week's as, as well. But 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. God, speak to us through your word, Lord. 2 Corinthians 7, 8. For though I made you sorry with the letter... I do not repent, or change my mind, though I did repent, for I perceived that the same epistle had made you sorry, though it it were but for a season. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance, for you were made sorry after a godly manner, that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. And so here's a passage here. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians uh, having to address some particular specific sin that was going on in the church in Corinth. Now we're reading a second epistle, or second letter to the Corinthians. And he's saying, it was hard, and I was a little bit sorry that I wrote it. But I'm not really sorry that I wrote it. uh, Because I was a little sorry because it made you sorry. But I'm glad I wrote it. And I'm glad you were made sorry. Because really, the sorrow led... was a godly sorrow that you had. And that godly sorrow brought about true repentance of the sin that I was dealing with in the last letter. Okay? So we say it's not easy to rebuke someone. It's not easy to... Say, hey, you really messed up here. What you need to do, you're wrong. You need to get this straight. Uh, Paul was correcting them. And by the time he gets to writing the second letter... They had received not only his letter and his authority as being an apostle of God, but they had followed instructions and it worked in their lives a work of God that only God can do. The conviction of the Holy Spirit that was brought about a godly sorrow. And the godly sorrow is not the end of the matter. The godly sorrow brought them to a place of repentance. Okay? And so overall, by far, this was a good thing. The godly sorrow worked Repentance, And so the word repentance, y'all, we're going to talk about this a little bit today. Got, uh, the word repent or repentance, most commonly used in the Bible, is, uh, it, the definition means to think again, a reversal, to reconsider, to think differently afterwards, okay? So we can talk a little bit about what sin was going on, the sin that was going on that Paul was addressing here, and what says it doesn't matter, this overall lesson is for every believer, okay? But what was going on in the church in Corinth is that they were believers. They had all the gifts of the Spirit going on. They were, they were very charismatic, I guess you would say, and probably loud and so forth in a lot of ways, but they weren't very spiritual, if that makes sense. They were very charismatic, but they weren't very wise and very spiritual. And in fact, Paul called them babes, your babes. He called them carnal. Are you not carnal? He didn't say they were lost. He didn't say you need to be born again. They were born again. He said you're carnal. And specifically, what he was addressing with uh, in you know, reference to what we read here, was there was a man who was having an ancestral relationship with his mother in the church. In other words, he was he was a member of good standing, I guess you would say, in the church, and having this relationship. And people knew about it. And they just let it go. Maybe he was serving in ministry. Maybe he was serving the Lord's Supper to people. Maybe he was teaching a Sunday school class. I don't know. But he he was in good standing. And the point is not that he was lost. The point is that they didn't deal with it at all. They thought they were being very gracious. This is a perversion of the grace of God, by the way. That's not grace. The grace of God... Uh, teaches us to live God, soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Titus 2.13, uh, or Titus 2.11. And so, they, what they were doing, they knew it was going on. It wasn't like a one-time act, even. It was going on. And they allowed it to go on. And we're just going to be so, this is grace. We'll just let it go on. It's, that's not grace. It's not God's grace at all. And he says... Why wouldn't you rather judge the situation? We don't judge someone's eternity. It's not like we say we come in, continue to hell. They can judge the sin and do what's right within the body of Christ and let God take up care of his soul and bring him to repentance. But you as a church body need to call this out. It's a biblical way to do it. There's a kind way to do it. There's a loving way to do it. But it has to be done. Is the world going to come in and do that for us? You see what I'm saying? It has to be done. And so they didn't do it at first, and they thought they were being very mature and gracious and loving. by let this continue, and they weren't. And the Lord, so Paul, the Lord through the Paul, Paul rebukes himself, him, one needs to be judged, to separate him from you for a time, for however long it takes for him to realize the error of his way, to get his life right with God, to stop the sin and come humbly back and be restored within the body beautifully the way it should be. You should put him away and deal with it and let God take care of the spiritual aspect and you take care of the, what you should do as believers. And by the time it gets to Second Corinthians, to this letter, it's good news because you can write the first letter and the church doesn't receive it and the people don't handle it right and say, Paul, we don't have to listen to you. You know, we're going to do what we think's best or what's right or what we want to do. They didn't do that. They grew up a good bit, it looks like, between First Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, if you read the letters. And so they did what was right, and specifically what was right with them personally, the church members that were believers, they had to repent for not handling that situation right. It was a sin on their part, and it was a serious sin. Serious sin that the man was doing But it was just as serious, probably with greater uh, ramifications, okay, on their part to not deal with the sin. Because then it permeates to the church. And people don't know what holiness is anymore, what's right or wrong. And the whole church is turned upside down before too long. So, But they did. They sorrowed with a godly sorrow. The letter made them sad. But there's a worldly sorrow that works death. Where you just Feel bad and mope, Okay? And then there's a godly sorrow. It's one step in the us to repentance. And repentance is the restoration of God and hallelujah. Amen. You know what I'm saying? That's a good thing. There are two different things: a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow. I always use an example. A you know, Worldly sorrow, I think sorrow, I think we see it all the time with public figures. I'm using them for an example. I don't have to name any particular one, an athlete that gets caught. Uh, you know, performance enhancing drugs or something. Or uh, betting on sports that they're playing on or something. Or a politician that gets caught in something and they can't get out of it. And so now they got to face the music, so to speak. And they might have a uh, speech writer or their agent write a speech for them. So you don't, they don't lose Nike as their sponsor, you know. They want to read the right thing and appear at the right or sort of contrition. And I'm sure maybe some of that is genuine, but it's almost easy to see through a lot of it that it's not genuine. They're sorry that, sorry that they got caught. That's what they're sorry for. They're sorry that there's a consequence to it. They might lose a sponsor. They might be embarrassed. They might, oh, they're, they're sorry. But not, God's not in that picture at all. It's just, I'm sorry because going to prison. I'm sorry because I got banned from baseball. I'm sorry because whatever. God's not even the picture but godly sorrow is just that godly. It starts with godly and it leads to repentance which deals with me and God. Not a bunch of people in God, me and the Lord. I'm sorry for my sin and I see how it's offended you and I see the seriousness of it and I see the weight of it and I'm not weakening at it and I'm not sorry that I got caught. I'm sorry that I've sinned against the holy God who's so loving. And save me. All right, as a Christian, I would say that it's, it's already saved me. And so that works, repentance. That's what happened in the Corinthian church, praise God. And it's a good example. So I want to talk today uh, about this. We talked last week, remember, do Christians need to, if a Christian sins, when I say Christian, I'm not using it in the generic term. When I say a Christian, we talked last week about someone who's born again. Truly born again and knows Christ, okay? Passed from death to life. Do Christians need to do anything when we sin? First of all, we said, uh, what does a believer need to do when he or she sins after they're saved? Is it just okay? Is all that just taken care of in our initial salvation? Is it even relevant? Does it even matter if we sin? I think in our common sense would tell us It matters. Common sense would say, it doesn't just all go away because I'm a believer. Um, With this, specifically we address the question, it's very popular in hyper-grace teachings today. Okay, I don't know if it originated with hyper-grace, but I know it's popular within hyper-grace teachers and their teachers. All of our sin is forgiven past, present, and future. It's not just one teacher that teaches this. This is a theme. And it ought to make your ears perk up a little bit, We talked about it last week. All of our sin is forgiven. Past, present, and future. And is that true? Is that what the Bible teaches? And we talked about it. No, I don't believe that is true. We use the Bible as our standard to go to and Look, all of our sin is paid for. All of our sin has been paid for in the work of Christ on the cross. All of the sins of a lost man That doesn't know the Lord right now, and some that will never come to know the Lord, and generations that are going to live, if if the Lord tarries, generations that are going to live 100 years from now. Their sins, all of that sin has been paid for in one final sacrifice for the sins of the world. There's not another one coming for those sins, for lost people and saved people. About John says in 1 John, we know that he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only. But for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 2. 2.2. 2, 2, so we know all of our sins. First of all a believer can a believer sin. A true Christian. Can we sin after we're saved? Yes. We better say yes. Or we're lying and that's a sin. Yeah. Okay. Because we've sinned since we've been saved. We know we can sin after we're saved. We don't believe in a sinless perfection. It's another doctrine. There, there's small camps that hold to that and say, after you're saved, uh, I, I'm not, I can't sin anymore. I don't sin anymore. And we would say, you're lying. <laughs> That's a sin. Because even in our thoughts, something we've sinned. We don't have to. Remember, the power of sin has been broken. We have no excuse when we do sin. It's nobody's fault but our own. But we can sin. We don't have to sin. But we can. It's possible. So what do we do with that sin after we're saved? That sin has been paid for, but if I'm, if I go out and, and God forbid, I'm just talking about something, it, it makes for a more dramatic example. That's why I'm using a sin like this. If I went out today and committed adultery as a believer, I went out today, and you committed murder as a believer, you say, "Well, I would never do that." Well, praise God, we would never do that. But the point is, it makes for a dramatic example. Do we think that's just going to go away and say, "Well, that's okay"? Because all my sins forgiven past, present, and future. No, all of my sin has been paid for in the the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. There is an atonement waiting for my sins. And all the sins that I have committed, but when I came to that point of salvation, here I'm walking around lost, I come to the cross, I meet Jesus. He washes all my sins away. Sins I've forgotten about. Mm -hmm. All of it. He breaks the power of sin. You, we were slaves to sin. John right. chapter 8. Whoever sinned committed sin is a slave to sin. So He does that. He forgives me. He cleanses me. Yeah. He removes my sins as far as the east is in the west. Never to remind me. Never to bring them up. Never to throw them back in my face again. All of them. And He breaks that power of sin. And He delivers me from the consequences of sin. In other words, uh, eternal consequences, condemnation, the lake of fire and so forth. I'm passed from death to life. So all that's settled. It's settled one time and it's settled for all. That does not come back up again. So all my sin is paid for. But if I sin today, and you know, I've been saved for many years, and you've been saved, many for many years, you sin today. Preferably not murder or something huge, but but it's all sin. What do we do with that sin? Do we just wink at it? Anyway, it's all taken care of in the cross. It's all paid for in the cross. But the Bible and the scriptures that we used last week and it's going to tie into this week. 1 John 1.7, 1 John 1.9, and 1 John 2.1. 1 1 John 1.7, if we walk, John is writing to Christians, if we walk in the light, it's just in obedience to Christ, walking in the Spirit. If we walk in the light, as He is in the light, the Lord, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sins. Amen. First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, written to believers, okay, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that tells me at the time that I sin as a believer, remember, we don't have to. We ought not look for excuses. We ought not sin. Okay? First John 2, 1. That's the other one. My little children... Very specific Christians. They weren't literally his children. Children in the faith. My little children, these things write I unto you. That you sin not. But if any man sin, we, and John includes himself in that. We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. Don't sin. But if we do, aren't you thankful? That that's not, it's not over for me. I sinned. Now where do I go? I'm already a Christian. I've given my life to Christ. Mm-hmm. Now I sin. What do I do? Well, we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanses us from all unrighteousness. <coughs> and we have it, and it goes with that scripture, we have an advocate. That means a helper, a
1: mm-hmm. comforter. You,
0: he can't help me if I don't go to him. Just like you can't help a lost person, mm-hmm. You though he paid for all their sins. Pay for Hitler's sins. You don't even pay for everyone's sins. But he can't help that man or woman if they don't come to him. Their mm-hmm. sins paid for but they're not forgiven. So you understand the point, to make the statement All of as believers, all of our sin is forgiven past, present, and future, is not true. To say all of our sin is paid for past, present, and future is true. So that means I need to be forgiven of any ongoing sin that I may commit, right, as a believer. That's important because it has ramifications on how we live our life. So it's paid for, and there's a wonderful scripture, I'm going to read it, this is perfect if you're taking those, you really want to study this sometime, and maybe you're confused, you want to think it over again uh, Romans 3 25 says, speaking about Christ who God had set forth to be a propitiation that's a Bible word means an atoning victim somewhat, uh, an atoning victim or an atoning substitute to be a propitiation through faith in his blood To declare his righteousness for the remission, which means forgiveness of sins that are past. The atonement, the the payment is for all sins. But the remission of sins, the forgiveness of sins, are for those, Romans 3.25, that are past. Past sins in our lives. We come to Christ, it's all washed away. I live 99 years and say I'm only going to live 5 more minutes. But in my 99th year, I pray and give my life to Christ. 99 years of sins are washed away. If I sin again in the next five minutes, I need to ask God to forgive me. Not so I'll go to heaven, but so that sin will be dealt with. Amen. Okay? And this is what we're going to talk about. So it's sins that are past. Uh, so I'm going to move on to, uh, a little bit deeper into this. We agree with God. That's confession. Confession. If you confess our sins. We confess our sins. Right? He's faithful and just. To forgive us our sins. So I've also heard another statement. That. Christians. Don't need to repent. Believers. Don't need to repent. Only. To confess. Believers don't need to repent of their sins. Only to confess their sins. And I would ask y'all. Is that true? Is that what the Bible says? And I'm just gonna jump way ahead in my own sermon here and say that confession and repentance, they're not the same thing, but in true confession there's gonna be repentance. Yeah. Just like godly sorrow is gonna to lead to repentance. True confession is not just saying, okay, I did it, God, so what? Well, I confessed, right? I beat up somebody today and stole their wallet. I confess, that's not confession, that's words biblical confession is different. It means to agree with. To agree with who? With God. What does God say about your sin? He doesn't wake at it. He doesn't think it's little. That sin put his son on the cross to die. So I'll not be little but God doesn't be You understand what I'm saying? And so, what does when we do sin, and I'm going to make this part of, it, of, of the sermon today, that when we do sin as believers, it affect, if it doesn't affect my eternity and my salvation and I don't believe it does in the sense of if I'm a Christian and I sin today oh no I'm not going to heaven there's nothing, the Bible doesn't teach that it affects a lot of other things that are important though and we kind of touched on it last week it affects my fellowship with God no doubt about it it affects my communion with the Lord and that can lead in my distancing myself from God because of unconfessed and unrepented sin can do what? We know it probably because there's been seasons in our life we've lived this way. It can lead to a hard heart to where we don't feel the conviction of the Lord nearly as much. We find ourselves way down the road somewhere out there in sin back in the world that He saved me out of and I'm a Christian but I didn't deal with the sin that I committed and it can, it can lead to uh Running my testimony. And testimony, as I said last week, very valuable. We ought to guard that testimony. Well, the children ought to guard their testimony at school. Well, adults, we ought to guard our testimony and work around lost, lost people and, and just in, in general through life. The Lord helps us, but we ought to take it seriously and guard our testimony for the Lord now that we're snobs and think we're better than them. But we've been redeemed. And uh-huh. I'm not what I used to be. And I need to live like I'm not I used to be. I need to give glory to God for that. And so, our testimony for the Lord, our obedience to the Lord, the glory that God can receive out of my life, our fellowship with God, our intimacy with the Lord, all of that is affected by sin as a believer. Notice I didn't mention eternal salvation in that because we're born again. Okay? So, Christians are to confess and God forgives us. But this statement that Christians don't need to repent, only to confess, and they may actually use the scripture which we're using, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins. Isn't that what the Bible says? That is what the Bible says, but that's not the only thing that the Bible says. The Bible does say that, right? But that's not the only thing the Bible says, and I also think when they say we don't have to repent, only confess, that is a misunderstanding of confession. because I said, within true confession, there's going to be repentance that brings us back Humbly before the Lord. And so I want to talk about this for just a minute. Is that what the Bible teaches to believers? Is there ever a need for a believer to repent? Yes. There is a need for believers to repent. Often. We do need to repent of any sin that we commit as believers. However often that is. And remember we don't have to sin. It is not a repentance in order to be saved. Because we're already saved. It's not, and believers have already done that. And I want to give some scriptures here so that anybody goes back to, listens to this, or studies this, will know what we're saying here. A believer who would could not be a believer today if they hadn't repented yesterday (laughs) or whenever that was. There is a true repentance when when Paul and Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. Besides Jesus, okay, the first real sermon of the New Testament era, all right, on the day of Pentecost, when they're all filled with the Holy Ghost, he's preaching on the streets of Jerusalem during the Feast of Pentecost, there's people from all over that are in the city, and um, he preached the gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins of the world, a simple gospel, which is what we're to preach, and, and the people cried out under the conviction of the Holy Ghost men and brethren what shall we do in other words you got us Paul we're convicted you're, we believe what you're saying now what first word out of Paul Peter's mouth repent and be baptized and you'll receive remission or forgiveness of sins and he talks about the Holy Spirit as, as well but repentance for salvation is necessary Repenting is a turning, a change of mind, to think again differently afterwards, it says, a reversal to reconsider. And so it is a turning. And I always described it when I taught Bible studies and I taught my boys when they were little, and just because it worked for my, my way of thinking. It's just, you can picture one of these huge ships, an aircraft carrier, the big, biggest ship in the world, probably, an aircraft carrier. And it's going a direction in the Atlantic Ocean. And it has to turn around. It's got to it's got to swing around the front end. It may take a off for that big ship. It's got to make a complete 180. It's not just going to degree over here. We're slightly off course. We gotta it's a turning, a reversal. Okay? And so if I'm walking and I don't know Jesus and I'm just living my life the way I think best, which includes sin. And I'm living my life in sin and I don't know the Lord. And I'm living as a lost man. I'm living this way. Every man's doing what's right in his own eyes. We've all gone our own way. And I hear the voice of the Lord. Maybe somebody's witnessing to me. I'm listening to a sermon. I'm reading a Bible one day. And God begins to convict me. And like these people on the day of Pentecost that Peter was preaching to, the, the reality of it hits me. I can't just say to that voice behind me, Thank you, Lord, for dying for my sins. That was wonderful. And keep living this way. That's not going to bring me salvation. That's going to bring me death. The wages of sin is death. And so there has to be repentance for salvation. You may not really sit and think, I repent of this, I repent of this, I repent of this. Maybe you do. It's not bad to do that. But in in salvation, we just say, I repent of that. All that over there. I repent of living my life my own way for past sins and for things I want and things I'm pursuing after and desires and thoughts and living my life my own way without God. I've been an offense to you and I repent of all that. And I'm turning to Jesus. So now if I've made a 180, who am I looking at? I'm looking at the Lord Jesus and what is behind me, all that other life. It's like that aircraft carrier that made a big swing around. It's going the other way. It didn't just bump off a little bit. It went 180s. That's, to me, a good picture of repentance. Nobody can be saved without that. They might not have thought of it exactly the way I described it, but that, that has to take place within their life and within their heart. I want to read a couple of scriptures here real quickly. Uh, Old and New Testament about repentance <coughs> unto salvation, first of all. all right, This is repentance unto salvation and what we repent of. Ezekiel eighteen thirty through 32 Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, Everyone according to his ways, saith the Lord, repent, and turn yourselves from all your transgressions. He's telling them specifically what to repent of. So iniquity shall not be your ruin. Cast away from you all your transgressions, whereby you have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For while will you die, O house of Israel, for I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord. God, wherefore turn yourselves and live, so there's a repentance there. Acts 20, 21. Paul preached, testifying both to Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 3, Jesus said, Therefore I said unto you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So this is repentance unto salvation. Everybody has to repent. Um, Acts 20, 238, we talked about that on the day of Pentecost. Two more scriptures, Acts 17.30. Paul on Mars Hill preaching t- t- in Athens. In the times of this ignorance, God winked at. But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Pretty inclusive, right? He commands all men everywhere to repent. Again, I believe this, this is for salvation. One more, Acts 26.20. Paul was preaching, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coast of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. Alright, so I'm, I'm saying this quickly. In order to be saved, if you're here today and you're born again, or anybody that's ever been born again, they had to repent. They had to repent. So do Christians need to repent after they're saved? Yes, they do. And I want us to look at this. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 21. Lest when I come again my God will humble me among you and that I should bewail many which have sinned already, sort of sinned in the church he's d- discussing and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. So he's saying here, when I come to you uh, and I I pray that this is dealt with before I get here because right now there are people in the church, believers, that have not repented of these specific sins. I don't think it's just that guy we talked about earlier. There are people, more than one, who have not repented of their sins. And so Christians do need to repent. We talked about with the scripture we opened up from 2 Corinthians 7, right? They sorrow to a godly repentance, they were believers. They sorrowed into a godly repentance. He didn't tell them they had to be saved again. He told them they had to repent of their sin. And think about that. I, I said with that, within true confession, there's a there's a measure of repentance. They overlap. I don't think they can be totally separated. But if I am, and this, again, I'm giving the extreme examples so that maybe it'll get home. If I'm a believer and I'm beating my wife, i prayed to give my life to Jesus and I'm in it at some point in the past. But I'm beating my wife and I just say, God forgive me for beating my wife. And I don't repent of that. As I'm beating her, and continue continuing to beat my wife saying, God forgive me. You understand the point? There has to be repentance. Our, our own conscience tells us that. Everything we know about God says there has to be repentance of that. That doesn't mean I may never commit a sin again in the future. You know what I'm saying? God, you know, I'll never take another drink of alcohol again. And, and maybe sometime down the road they do. The point is, at that moment, I have to repent of that sin. And I have to mean it. I have to be sincere with God. Not only am I confessing my sin, God, I beat my wife. Forgive me. Stop beating your wife. Yeah. Now, again, it's a crazy example. Okay? But the point is that it, it hits home. We have to stop sinning. That's a repentance, right? A reversal. To think differently afterwards and say, this is wrong. I'm temporarily insane. What am I doing? I'm offending God. I'm hurting my wife in this instance. Oh, Did God save me out of all of this? God, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. Graveling in, on the, in the, on the ground before the Lord, crying. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not a show, but if it's genuine, let him cry. Cry, let some of those tears bring a little purification and get some of that out of us. Understand the weight of our sin. So many of the modern church want to pass right over that and just say, just, just uh, believe in Jesus. Okay, from point A to point B, we'll get you there. All right, leave happy today. Because you just got saved. Maybe they never felt the weight of their sin. Maybe they were never convicted of their sin. And chances are, if they didn't, they're going to go back to their sin. And maybe it wasn't a true conversion in the first place. That would be a disservice on the minister of God. Or the one who's witnessing. We have to let the Holy Ghost do His work. And it's a good thing to have godly sorrow. And it's a good thing because the godly sorrow will lead to godly repentance. Not to be repented of or changed later. And so, uh, believers do need to repent. And we need to turn from those actions, those thoughts. We need to turn to the Lord for forgiveness of those sins as we confess and repent. And we need to turn to the Lord for strength to not do it again. And in both instances, we have to go to God, right? Uh, I've sinned. I want to stop. Please forgive me. He says, I forgive you. Our next prayer needs needs to be, Lord, help me to not do this again. It is a real weakness in my life, I see it, I know it, I'm aware of it, and I've failed more times than I want to remember in this area. Please strengthen me to not do it. We go to the Lord for both of those, and guess what? He's able to do both of those. And so I want you all to turn with me and look at this in uh, in Acts chapter 2. We're looking at examples of believers, Christ- uh, repentance for Christians, repentance for believers, because I've heard with my own ears. And have deep discussions that Christians don't need to repent, only confess. That is not true. And I don't have to be a Bible scholar to even know that. We just have a few scriptures. There are many. We're going to look at some today. Look at Acts chapter 8. Now we know this story, or maybe I'll I'll refresh your memory on it. Philip the evangelist was not one of the apostles. He was one of those became one of the leaders in the church. He's filled with faith and wisdom and the Holy Ghost, and he goes and begins to preach the gospel to Samaria. Jews and Samaritans had no dealings with each other, but the Lord wanted the gospel to be in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. So Peter, I mean Philip, brings the gospel on his own. The Lord leading him, he goes to Samaria, and the people are getting saved. There's great joy in that city That people believe and give heed to his gospel. or the gospel of God. Seeing and hearing the miracles that he did. And he lists some of the, the miracles that were done. So there's the gospels going forth in word but in power. And the people in Samaria. Are watching the miracles. Listening to the gospel and saying we believe. We believe. They believed on the salvation. It was true salvation. Philip baptizes them in water. So an outward symbol of an inward commitment. Philip knew and he baptizes those that believed in Samaria. So Peter and John hear about this, and they they hurry down there real quick. Oh, this great revival. Of people getting saved in Samaria. They didn't say, Oh, that's horrible. Let me get down there and stop it. No, they, they want to go and pray, lay their hands on people and pray for them to receive the fullness, of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because as if yet he had not fallen upon any of them. In the sense that uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, like on the day of Pentecost, upon 120. When they got there, they laid hands, they prayed on them, prayed over them, they received. So now they're, they're saved from hearing the gospel, seeing the miracles. They're baptized in water, and they're baptized in the Holy Spirit. Well, there was a witch doctor, basically, a sorcerer in that town named Simon. He had bewitched the people. He, he could do supernatural things, he had some satanic power to his life and he gave out the impression through his words and deeds that he was some mighty person of God. And so everybody gave heed to him. He probably used that to, for a measure of power and wealth and control over the people. He was ungodly. Okay? Simon the sorcerer. But look what it says in, in verse 13. Then Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptized. So here's Simon the sorcerer He's not the sorcerer anymore. He's Simon the believer. The Bible tells us, let's say when he acted like he believed, it says, then Simon himself believed. And when he was baptized, he continued like a disciple. He continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. So we have to admit he's fresh in this, real new in this, whether it's a matter of days or weeks or months, however long this revival is going on, but the Bible says he believed. The Bible says he was baptized, just like the others in Samaria that believed and were baptized. Then there's this notable, gross, horrible sin that we read about. Look at verse 18. When Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, in this instance Peter and John, the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money. He's ignorant. This is some reflection of his old lifestyle still in it. He's wanting to have this power exclusively so he could wield it over other people probably like he had done. Saying, give me also this power that on whomsoever I lay hands he may receive the Holy Ghost. Well, we, we know that. What well, is wrong? You're way out of life. You're way out of balance, Simon. What are you thinking? Okay? Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of thy wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive thou art in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Okay, this is interesting, because a lot of people look and say, well, he's not saved. But I'm just going to go... And I don't, to me, it's not worth arguing over. We're going to look at some other scriptures. I believe he was saved. Because the Bible says he believed. And he was baptized. And it gives us... It, the Bible tells us about, that about Simon. And the Bible also knows, uh, points out in detail the sin of Simon. But Peter, if you'll notice, Peter never says come over here, Simon, you're not saved. Come over here, Simon, let me tell you, let me preach the gospel to you. The only way you can be saved is through the gospel, right? It's the power of God and the salvation. He doesn't sit him down and say, you know, Jesus died through sin and rose again. He didn't preach him the gospel again because he was a believer. I believe this. He was a believer, and Peter never says he was lost, and the Bible doesn't say he was lost at this point. Uh, He didn't say you need to be saved again, but he did say you need to repent that the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. Okay, the thought of his heart was thinking that the gift of God could be bought with money. And you're thinking all wrong about God. You're thinking wrong about the gifts of God, the grace of God. You're thinking all wrong about God. You're making him like, in your mind, like you are. You want to be a controller? You think he's a controller that can be bought off with money. Okay? He's not. You need to repent of that thought that's in your heart. What's my point in all that, y'all? Besides it being an interesting story in the Bible, there's a Christian, I believe, that was needed to repent. Not in order to be saved, but to be forgiven. Christians need to maintain, I'm going to bring this so close, Christians need are to maintain a repentant heart. Do you believe that? Yes. That that ought to be almost like an ongoing, not like, it ought to be an ongoing condition. In our hearts and lives. Staying repentant. Okay. So remember. In an illustration. I'm walking after the world now. I'm saved. So I need to stay repentant. I need to stay. Not feeling guilty. for You know. And condemning myself all day long. But I need to stay turned towards God. And I need to stay turned away from that world. Because it still has hooks. And it can still get me if I get place to it. Right. And so if. If, uh, if I start to turn like that big aircraft carrier, here's Jesus, I've been walking with the Lord 10 years, 15, 20 years, and I start to turn, okay, I can, I can find myself back walking this way. We'd be amazed how quickly we can find ourselves back there. Thank God we can come back, amen? But the point is, Christians are to maintain an attitude or a heart of repentance towards God. Repentance towards God. It's an ongoing thing. Matthew Henry says this in his commentary, Repentance is a daily duty. He that repents every day of the sins of every day, when it comes to die, will only have the sins of one day to repent of. Okay? So if I'm repenting daily, I don't have to sin, but if I am, and I've repented and asked God to forgive me today and confessed and turned from that today, and I'm it, okay? Then when it comes time to die, you know, I won't have all that built up, even within my Christian life. I'm still going to heaven. But I won't have to answer to God for all of that because it would have been put away by the blood of Jesus and forgiven and cleansed. You, we know that in the, the churches, the seven churches that were addressed in Revelation chapter, chapter 2 and 3, Jesus was pictured in chapter 1 as being in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. He was in the midst of his churches. There were specific Asian churches, right? We studied them. And so where was Jesus? He wasn't somewhere... You know, out in left field, these were his churches. They were saved people, and Christ was pictured as being walking in the midst of his seven churches. But yet, five of them, for sure, had serious <coughs> sins. Five of them had serious sins that they had to be re- that the Lord rebuked them of. The Lord Himself, He didn't send some messenger. He was rebuking them. I mean, He rebuked them, John, through the through the letter, through John. And I'm just going to give a. Uh, a couple of examples, real, real quickly here. The church at Pergamos, Re- repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. The church of Sardis in chapter three. Remember, therefore, how thou hast, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast, and repent. If thou, if therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come as a thief on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. The church of Laodicea, it was lukewarm, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, and be zealous therefore, and repent. I just want to give a couple of examples. He never said to any of those, even the worst of the worst, that were holding to the you're allowing Jezebel to preach her false doctrine in the church or whatever. He never said to any of them, you're not saved. You're going to hell. You're lost and need to re- repent for salvation. He dealt with them as children that were in error, serious error. Some of our error can be more serious than other, others, but he dealt with them as believers. He never preached the gospel to them again. and said, you're not saved. You just act like say you're saved. He didn't do that in any of the seven churches. He said, repent. Come back to your first works. Come back to your first love. Come back to doing what you know is right. Hold fast to what you know is true. I'm going to deal with you if you don't, okay? And so I, I think that's important. And that to me just goes along with everything you know about God and with <coughs> repentance. There's a repentance unto salvation that happens one time. After I, I'm a believer, and I need to stay in the attitude of repentance. If I sin as a believer, I need to come confess to God and turn to the Lord. Not so that do will take me to heaven. I'm already saved. But so that my relationship with God won't have that hindrance, that wall. God's not going to just have a wonderful laugh, hugging, special fellowship time with me today if I got sin in my life that I refuse to deal with. I can promise you the first thing He wants to deal with is that sin. I promise you. He wants to get it out of the way. Come and confess it. He'll take it away return from it. Ask God for strength. Well, I don't have the t- strength to turn from it. Ask for strength to turn from it. He'll give you the strength to turn from it. Okay? He's going to deal with that sin first in our communion, our testimony to the Lord publicly, then the church among the lost people, our testimony for Christ. It all is to be restored uh, as we repent and turn to the Lord. So I'm going to close with this. And I'll, I, I'm going to close with something that I believe is very positive. When I was studying and praying over this, repentance—true, godly repentance—okay—is a blessing. When you think about it, today, today, in, in our culture, it's almost—it's almost ridicule. You know, the lost people that make fun of Christians. Oh, they—you know—repent, repent, and they—they think it's a big joke. But even within the the heading of Christianity within churches. You don't hear a lot preached about repentance. That's all that negative stuff. And it's negative and we don't like to think about it a lot. We just want to move on to the love of God. Well, the Bible says it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. You know what the word lead there means? It means to bring. It means to actually carry. The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. It means it's like God picks you up. Here's the sinner in a sin. And it's the goodness of God that picks up the sinner... Brings them to the foot of the cross. That's God's goodness. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Okay, the goodness of God leads thee to repentance, and I was saying that it's a gift of God. We can, we, we. It's possible for me to repent. You see what I'm saying? That's a good thing. It's not like there's no wiggle room. There's the death and hell, and there's heaven and hell, and you know what I mean. And, and knowing God, not going knowing God, but with my sin. I can repent. I have a choice to make. I can heed the word of God. I can turn from my sin. I can turn to God. I can turn back to God if I've walked away from the Lord, even as a believer. Those are good things. And so he carries us there. We can repent by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can turn from our sins and be forgiven. Aren't you glad? You don't just have to stay there, even as a Christian. You, well, I guess I'll just have to live with this and with the guilt and the shame. No, you don't. You can repent. Thank you. Lord. Thank and I can repent. And I can do it this morning. And I can be forgiven. And I can be cleansed. Marty, his child, if I am his child, I'm his child, I'm still his child. But I can have that removed out of my life. I get to do that. I can be cleansed and forgiven. He's not going to argue with me and, and, and try to embarrass me and humiliate me and drag me through the mud. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. He wants you to forgive, to, to repent. He wants me to repent. He wants to put the sin away. And so I'm going to close with this scripture. Then you, you can come in uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 11. Now, we we, we open with first, I mean, 2 Corinthians seven eleven. We open with 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10. We stop short of this verse. I want to get, save it for the end. That godly sorrow that led to repentance, and Paul was excited. For behold, this, self, this selfsame thing, that you sorrowed after a godly sorrow, sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all things you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter." We, we could preach a whole sermon just on that. I'm not. But the point is that the, the godly sorrow that led to godly repentance, true repentance, he says, you know what it did for you, that godly repentance? I'm going to sum it up. It, it, it got revenge on your sin, basically. Because you didn't just stay there and say, okay, I guess that was kind of bad what I did. No, you came clean out of it. And you set your face against it. That was sin. I was wrong. What I did was wrong. My God has forgiven me. He has cleansed me and strengthened me. I'm relying on His strength to not do it again. I make no excuses for it. He says, what clearing of yourselves. It's like, I'm clear in this matter. Some internal investigation, you know, some policemen to see if they're corrupt or taking bribes, and they finally get all the evidence out there and say, oh, you're clear in this matter. It won't be visited again. We're done with that. That's how it is. Real real repentance clears us in the matter. What clearing of yourselves? It doesn't mean we'll never sin again. Pray we don't, but we might. Okay? And but everything up until that point can always be repented of. Can be repented of. We can be clear in the matter. I think it's a great thing. It's not there's not some cloud or shadowy cloud that hangs over somebody. Um, Maybe they're halfway innocent so they of this, I'm not sure. In God's us, we're cleared of it when we repent. We're forgiven and cleansed. And I, and I just thank the Lord for that. Y'all can stand. I want to read one more quote from Matthew Henry. The altar is open. Matthew Henry says, Many mourn for their sins, but don't repent of them. Many mourn for their sins, but don't repent of them. Many weep bitterly over their sins, and yet continue to keep in company with their sins. But repentance is going to break off that company with our sins. Repentance is going to distance ourselves between us and our sin. There'll be no excuses. There'll be no hiding places. we are not halfway in and halfway out. Um, we can't continue <coughs> in league or in, in in friendship with our sins and then walk in repentance. There there is either or and these altars the altars open, I encourage you to come Thank God, and maybe you have no sin in your life right now, and everything's wonderful, and thank God for that. Thank God that you can repent. Thank the Lord that we can confess. Thank you that there's a provision, not just initially at salvation, but there's a provision for our sins all the way through, all the way through this life. And Father, we praise you and thank you, Lord God, for the provision. It is Jesus. It's Jesus at salvation, and the provision for sin after salvation is Jesus. And if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Lord, if there's any in this room here today that don't know Jesus, I pray they would come to know you and repent and, and your goodness would bring them there. There's any here today that are believers that have unrepented sin in their life. They wouldn't leave and walk out of these doors today without repenting of their sin and confessing and receiving that full pardon cleansing and forgiveness of that sin in their lives God we love you thank you for being merciful and gracious and offering repentance to men in Jesus name